The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to John 14 if you haven't done so already. John chapter 14, and we're simply going to begin with verse 1. Jesus is speaking and he says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is exactly where we ended last week. We ended right here with these words, seeing that this is, this is a call from Christ to his disciples that are with him. He's having his last supper with them before he heads to the cross. Darkness is descending. Literally, it's night, but also there's a great gathering spiritual darkness. And in the midst of that, To instruct them on how they are to live amidst the darkness, these are his words. And we ended seeing that this is how we are supposed to live when the darkness descends, with untroubled hearts in Christ. My question for us this week is simply how? How's that possible? Like when... When a gunman enters the doors of the First Baptist Church of Sutherland, Texas, and opens fire that rips through 50% of a congregation and sends 27 souls into eternity like that. Like when that darkness descends, how let not your hearts be troubled? If that was happening... Last week, while we talked about the truth that the darkness doesn't win. But when things like that unfold, it sure, it sure is trying to convince our heart that it is winning. How do we live with untroubled hearts? This is a command. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's a command that we're supposed to follow. So how do I follow it? The disciples that are with Christ on this night, how are they supposed to follow this? I mean, don't forget the setting. Last supper, Jesus has just told them, I'm going away. You're not going to be able to follow me. One of you is going to betray me. Oh, Peter, by the way, you're going to deny me. All of you are going to abandon me. And it's right in the midst of that that Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. How is that even possible? For these disciples, for us, when the darkness descends in our lives and we feel abandoned by Christ like he's gone away and we can't fall. In in the thick of those moments, in the thick of, of those days, those months, those years, through sorrow, blood, through 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 tears, how's it possible for our hearts not to be troubled? This is what Jesus is going to unpack for the rest of chapter 14. Really Chapters 14, 15, and 16, he is going to be preparing his disciples for how to live after he leaves. Yes, he's coming back. He's going to raise from the dead. He'll spend 40 more days with them. But then he's, he's ascending to the right hand of the Father. He will be gone physically, not present with them, physically not present with us. And so these three chapters are designed to tell, here's how you live. Here's how we live without Christ here physically with us. And in 14, he specifically is unpacking how it is we can live in the midst of that, 
in the midst of a dark world without our hearts being troubled. He gives us the basic answer to how. Like right there in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. He follows it immediately with just a very simple answer, the answer in its most simple form. It's faith. You see that? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe. Pistuo is the Greek word for faith, belief, trust, reliance. Believe in God, believe also in me. You see how those things are parallel? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. Just as you have believed in God, believe in me in the same way because I am God in the flesh. Jesus is saying, how do you go through this dark world with your heart being untroubled? You you believe in me. You trust me. You rest in me. Put your faith in me. This This is the same way that I, as a parent, try to calm my own children's troubled hearts amidst the darkness. It's like my kids have a bad dream, and they come to me in the middle of the night, and they cling to me. Okay, that's a lie. They come to their mother, and they cling to her. But let's just pretend they come to me, and they cling to me. Okay, so when they come, totally scared of the dark, what do we tell them, Holly and I? They do come to me sometimes. What, what do we tell them? I say, it's okay. It's okay. I'm, I'm here. Nothing's going to get you. Nothing's going to harm you. I'm, I'm here. Am I not saying, believe me, rest in me, trust me, put your faith in me, and, and to help them do that, I offer up reasons for them to trust me. I offer up promises for them to bank on. Nothing's going to get you. Why? Because I've got you, and I'm not letting, that's a promise. You can, you can bank on that. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I, through my words, I'm offering promises. My, my words, through, through them hearing my words, I'm aiming to stir up faith in order that their heart might be comforted. This is precisely what Jesus does in John 14. Just like I do it for my little children, Christ does it for his Did we not see last week, not that far back up, you guys should go back up to chapter 13 and verse 33, he calls his disciples, us, his little children. And Jesus does the same thing in John 14 for his children that I do for mine. Amidst the darkness, he aims to calm our troubled hearts by calling them to believe in him, rest in him, have faith in him, and to help our hearts do that He gives us reasons to trust Him. He gives us promises to bank on. And our faith is stirred up as we hear His Word. Romans 10, 17 happens. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing from the Word of Christ. Christ speaks His Word. We hear it. It stirs up faith. Our hearts are comforted. That That's what he's aiming to do, and so that's what I'm aiming to do this morning. I simply want us to hear the words, the promises of Christ in John 14 for the strengthening of our faith amidst the darkness, amidst a world where 27 people can die in a church service on a Sunday morning in an instant. Want us to hear the words of Christ for the strengthening of our faith so that we may live with untroubled hearts. Believe, 
that in verses 1 through 6, Jesus gives us at least four promises. At least four promises to strengthen our faith. And specifically, these promises are about our future. And I bring that up because there is a danger anytime we start dealing with promises that are about our future in the Bible. And the danger is is of us dismissing and neglecting these promises. I think, I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but I, I think that we often do that because whenever we hear Jesus giving us promises for our future, we think to ourselves, that's nice. It's great promises, Jesus, but they don't help me out now. Like, great, I got a future and hope. I talk about heaven all day long. Wonderful. What does that have to do with now? Helping me out today, this week. What about my, my present? I mean, we, we heard these promises read just a moment ago. These promises in John 14, 1 through 6. Do you know when these promises get brought up the most, when people quote them the most? Do you know the setting these are most often read in? Funerals. That's when we go to this passage is for funerals. That's how far into the future we put these promises. They're only worth using at the end of life. And don't get me wrong. They are very comforting then. There's nothing wrong with using these verses at a funeral. But Jesus is speaking them, and he's not at a funeral. Like, he's not speaking to people on death's doorstep. No, he believes that these future-oriented promises are precisely what is needed for him to, to, to give his disciples untroubled hearts in the present dark. This is what they need for their right now. As they're about to lose him as he goes to the cross and they're going to be in the midst of a darkness like they've never known, they need these future-oriented promises. Jesus will, he will eventually give them promises that concern their present. That's what we're going to see next week, you may. When, when, when Jesus gets to verse 7, he's going he's to make a turn. He's going to move from future-oriented promises to promises for the present. We'll get there next week. But he begins with promises for our future. Why? Because they lay the foundation for the present promises. Future promises lay the foundation for present promises. In, in, In other words... If the future promises are not true, then who cares what Jesus has to say about the present? Like, if there's no forever hope, then there's really no present hope. You see how that works? We've got to lay the foundation before we can build on it. We need a promised future. And my prayer is that we will see this morning how this promised future does make an immediate difference in our present. So, let's simply walk through these four future-oriented promises one at a time so that our faith may be strengthened and we can live with untroubled hearts. Promise number one. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. 
These are all paraphrases when I give you them in points. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe there are many rooms in my Father's house. Just promise number one. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe there are many rooms in my Father's house. See it in the text. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus has told them, I'm leaving, I'm going away, and now he's pointing us towards where he's going. He's going to be with the Father. Our stereotypical word for that is heaven. And I I try not to use that word, not because it's not a perfectly good biblical word, but because it tends to conjure up images in our head that aren't biblical. Jesus is going to give the disciples an image of what he's talking about. And his image is not halos, wings, and white fluffy clouds where it's perfectly 72 degrees all the time and everybody sits around playing harp music that nobody likes. I apologize if you love harp music (laughs) or you're a harpist. I said that one time and there was a harpist present. Came up to me afterwards, she was not happy. It's not the image that he gives. It's not the image that the Bible gives. The Bible actually gives us very little about what ever being with God is like after death. It just tells us that we will be with him. When, when the Bible moves to describe our eternal forever home, it goes straight to the end. And the end is not some lofty spiritual realm. Let me read to you one of the greatest descriptions of it. It's in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 3. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That's a picture of evil being wiped out and no more. And, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the biblical picture of what forever eternity looks like. It looks like a recreation of Eden. Our God did not create this world and put us in it to one day whisk us away from it. He's in the process of redeeming it and making it new from everything that broke it. And what the end looks like is a completely redeemed new heavens, new earth, and God here with us. The goal of God and the goal of the gospel is not to whisk us away to some lofty realm to be with God forever. The goal of God and the gospel is for God to come, with, to, come to us and to be with us forever. That's, that's the theme of the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, God comes, walks amongst the garden. In the, in the tabernacle, God comes, dwells amongst his people. In the temple, God comes, dwells amongst his people. In Christ, God comes, dwells amongst his people. Now, the Holy Spirit, God comes, dwells amongst his people. What makes us think the end of the book would change? He comes, he renews all Heaven, eternity is not this boring sing-along service forever. It's life. Life as he created it to be lived. It's laughing, loving, playing, working without a single stain of sin, with not any of it feeling void or empty, but all of it being worship to him. That's, that's eternity. And the image, sorry, none of that was in my notes. The image that Jesus gives his disciples fits with that. It's an image of a house. 
with many rooms. Now, if you grew up like I did on the King Jimmy version, King James, sorry, um, then it says there are many mansions. I hate to be the bearer of bad news this morning, but the Greek word right here does not mean mansions. That is an unfortunate English translation based off of the Latin Vulgate, if you really want to know. The Greek word simply means dwelling place or room. So, yes, the audio adrenaline song Big House is technically more theologically accurate than many hymns. And if that sentence made no sense to you, consider yourself lucky. But here's the deal. Many rooms is actually better news than many mansions. Many mansions conjures up this picture of eternity where I am my own autonomous ruler, sitting up in my mansion with all my stuff, doing what I want. Everything is all about me. It's just one big self-indulgent party where I can spend eternity swimming in my riches like Scrooge McDuck. You're welcome, 80s kids. That, that's not heaven. That's hell. Like, like that is the way we all try to find soul satisfaction right now. The world tries to find it that way by building up our own kingdom and being self-centered and pouring into myself. And it's an empty hole, a bottomless void, a pit that never satisfies. And I can't imagine embracing that soul-suckingness for, for eternity to try and seek satisfaction in me for all eternity. That does not sound like heaven at all. But praise God for the good news of the gospel. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Children get rooms in their Father's house. Children get rooms in their Father's house. Not, not autonomous rulers who seek satisfaction in themselves. No, but children who find satisfaction in the provision of their parents. Children get a room in their father's house. Members of a family get a room in the house. No one else. Nobody else. I, if you don't know, by the million emails that we've sent out, my family is in the process of moving. If you've seen the emails, it's like, we're moving, we're not. We're moving, we're not. We are. We're living out of boxes right now. It's great fun. But as we move from one house to, to, to the next, um, at the new house, again, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but none of you get a room. Like, oh, sure, there's, there's a guest room. It doubles as a playroom, so walk around on your own risk there. But it's a room you can come and spend the night, but, but it doesn't belong to you. You don't get it. I'm not Oprah. You get a room, and you get a room, and you, everybody gets a room. that kind of cash flow. Now, only my children get rooms. Do you see what Jesus is saying to the disciples and to you? In my Father's house are many rooms, and there's one for you, because through me, you're his child too. 
this gospel started with that good news. John chapter 1 and verse 12, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. My little children, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in Christ, receive Him, you're a child of God, and you have an eternal place with your Father. You get a room, not a guest room. You're not just passing through. No, you get an eternal room. Do you see how this strengthens our faith right now? Strengthens our faith right now so that our hearts may be untroubled amidst the darkness. Just think about these disciples. They're about to lose everything. As they follow Jesus, they will lose homes, but not their eternal home. As they follow Jesus, they will lose family, but not their forever father. As they they follow Jesus, they will lose their lives, as we saw brothers and sisters in Texas lose their lives, and brothers and sisters around the world lose their lives daily they follow Jesus, they will lose their lives, but not their life in the family of God. No matter how much the world rejects us and tells us that we do not belong, there is a place where we will always belong. We may be exiles and strangers here on this earth now, but we have a home, you have a room in your father's house. It strengthens our faith right I have a room in my father's house, and so do you. And as, we, as I talk about that, you might be thinking, like, great, that sounds wonderful, Jonathan, but how can I be sure? You say I got a room. There's a place for me with God, but how, how can I be sure? Thoughts cross my mind more than once in my life because I don't know about you, but I do not deserve a room in the house of God forever. How can we be sure that there is a place for us that takes us to promise number two? Look at what Jesus says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe I go to prepare a place for you. It's his second promise. Believe I go to prepare a place for you. Verse two again. In my father's house, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I talk to my children this way when they have doubts. Like, like if I, I'm encouraging to do something. Here, come, come pet this dog. And they're doubting me. I'm like, would I tell you to pet an animal that's actually dangerous? Or if I'm I'm like, hey, let's all watch this movie together. Karis, my rule follower, she'd be like, is it appropriate? <laughs> like, would I encourage you to watch a show if it was inappropriate? Mom says it's inappropriate. Your mother and I have different standards. It's okay. <laughs> no, no. Like, like no, you, you, you get the point. When my children doubt me, I basically say to them, my word can be trusted. If I give you my word, I'm not going to lie to you. My children and I can be trusted. That's what Jesus is saying here. If there weren't room for you with my forever father, would I have given you my word that I'm going to prepare a place for you? How can you know for sure that you have a room in my father's house? Jesus says, I personally am preparing it for you. 
how, because that's where this gets really strong. How is Jesus preparing, guaranteeing for you a forever home with the Father? He says it. He's doing it by going. Did you catch that? I go to prepare a place for you. I'm leaving. I'm going. You can't follow. Why? Because what I'm about to do is something that only I can do. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm about to go. Where's he going? He's going to the cross. This is where he goes to prepare a place for you. This is what can only be done by him. He's going to the cross, and through the cross, Christ will die for my sin, for your sin. He'll die for every reason we can come up with that we don't deserve a room in the house of God forever. Every reason you can possibly dream up. He will take all of that upon himself, and he will die our death in our place three days later, rise again, proving that he's beaten our sin, proving that he's beaten the death that it deserved. He'll ascend to the right hand of the Father and sit down, showing his work is completed. He has prepared a place for me and for you, so trust him. How can you be sure that there is a place for you? Look to the cross. Here, Christ prepared our place by paying our price. It is finished. Your place is prepared. Do you see how this strengthens our faith? Even now, strengthens our faith so that our, our hearts may be untroubled amidst the darkness right now. Like, how much does our own darkness constantly accuse us remind us that we do not deserve the love of God. I don't know if your darkness, your sin does that. Mine does. When I look at these disciples, how often would the darkness of this night cause them to doubt? How many times would they think we denied him? We abandoned him. We ran. We're not worthy of him. We don't deserve him. The good news of the gospel is that we don't earn a place with Christ by our works. No, he has prepared a place for us by his work. It's finished. Our place is prepared. So, how do we get there? Great, there is a place for me. He's prepared it. He's made a way. It's guaranteed. It's mine. How do I actually possess it? That's where we need to see promises three and four. Promise number three. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe I will come again and take you to be with me. Believe I will come again and take you to be with me. See it in the text, verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is a promise that I repeat around my house a lot. These are a form of this promise I repeat around my house a lot these days to my children. I'm constantly finding myself saying things to them like, if I pack up your toys and I take them to a new place, I promise that I will take you to and where your toys are, you may be also. <laughs> Otherwise, they won't let us pack up anything. Christ promises to come again. He's not talking about his resurrection right here. 
yes, he'll rise, spend 40 days with his disciples, then he'll depart and they will see him no more. We do not see him physically now. And his promise for them and his promise for us is that he will one day come again and take us to be with him. If we're honest, we don't, we don't talk much about the second coming of Christ, the fact that he'll come again and take us to be with him. We don't talk about that very much in the modern Western church. Pretty much because there are small factions of the church for whom this is all they focus on. Even to the point of doing some really weird stuff. Making some really weird predictions. We don't want to be associated with that, so we tend to to distance ourselves and just not talk about this very much. And yet the entire New Testament, the entire Christian life, is to be lived in light of the reality that Christ is coming again. It's how the book ends with a promise and a prayer. Jesus says, I come quickly. And the prayer is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We live in light of this. This is our hope. And this hope, right here in this text, it has a root and it has a fruit. I want you to see it. Its root is the cross and the empty tomb. Look again at the beginning of verse 3. And if I go, we already talked about where he's going. He's going to the cross and through it to the empty tomb. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. One guarantees the other. Do you see that? If I go, I'll come again. You want to know if my promise to return is guaranteed? Look at the cross. Like I wouldn't have gone through that. I wouldn't have done that. Were I not able to bring about everything that I have promised, if I go to the cross, through it, to the resurrection on the other side, if I prepare a place for you like that, I'm guaranteeing my promise that I will come again. How guaranteed is the second coming of Christ? Do you believe he went to the cross? This is a fact, an undisputed fact of history that a man named Jesus Christ in around 33 AD died on a Roman cross, crucifixion stake, outside of the city of Jerusalem, crucified by the Romans. An undisputed fact of history. And Christ says, if I go, I will come. Again, the cross and the empty tomb are at the root of our hope that Christ will come again. And there's not just a root, there's also a fruit. Last time, verse 3. I will come again and will take you to heaven. I'm waiting on someone to object because you're all following along, I can tell. To myself, I will come again and take you. He doesn't say to heaven, he doesn't say to eternal recreation, eternal unlimited golf. He doesn't, he doesn't. He doesn't say to eternal relaxation. He doesn't say to reunite you with your relatives. He says, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. What makes heaven heaven is that we get Christ. We get Jesus. The fruit of the second coming is that we get Christ in face-to-face fullness. 
That is the completion of all our hopes, of all our joys, of the satisfaction of our soul. Every time you see a sunset and its beauty beckons you to want to see more, it's a beckoning because it's a reflection of the beauty that's found in the face of Jesus Christ. The ocean in all of its vastness that just overwhelms you, or the Grand Canyon and its depth that just stirs up something in you. These are all reflections, minute sparks that reflect the beauty of their creator, the beauty of Jesus Christ. And our longing for that beauty is a reflection, a spark of our longing for him. Everything my heart has ever desired, wanted, the satisfaction it has always sought is found solely in beholding the beauty of Christ. And it's what I get. Not a particular place. I get a particular person. Jesus. And it is true. It is true. We get Jesus now. In a way. We'll talk about that next week. Remember, present promises? Next week. It is true we get Jesus now. But 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says that our experience now is like seeing him in a mirror dimly lit. But well, the day is coming that we will see him face to face. 1 John 3 and verse 2 says that when he appears, when he comes again, we will see him as he is. The climactic promise of the Bible is Revelation 22 and verse 4 that simply says, we shall see his face. See his face. Do you see how this strengthens our faith? So that our hearts may be untroubled amidst the darkness right now. How often do we wish that there were just a rescuer for us right now in the darkness? Someone to come and save us. The, the, the world, all of us, we cry out, we beckon for a savior. Nearly every television show I watch right now, any type of drama that I watch, really at the end of the day is dealing with, with the darkness of the world and the need for a savior. Superhero films or savior films, they dominate the box office right now. Our politics have never been more divided and politicians have never been held higher as if they are the answer and the savior for our problems. Amidst all of this darkness, the good news of the gospel is that there is a Savior coming for you. Hold on to this hope. He will come again so that we might have Him. And even now, even now amidst the darkness as we are waiting, this is Titus 2.13, even now amidst the darkness as we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, even as we wait, we know the way through the darkness. Even as we wait, we, we know the way through the darkness. We have all that we need to walk the way through the darkness all the way home. This is our fourth and final promise. See it with me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe you know the way. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe you know the way. Look at verses 4 to 6. Jesus says, and you know the way 
to where I'm going. That's a promise. You receive, you know it. You know how to get all the way through the darkness, all the way home. You know the way to where I'm going. And we may object like Thomas does in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas doesn't get it. Like many others in this gospel before him, he's, he's merely thinking in, a, in, in physical terms and overly literal terms. He's like, Jesus, you say you're going to your father's house, got lots of rooms. I don't know where that is. I need an address. I need to like Google map it or something. You say we can't follow you, we can't caravan, so I'm going to need turn by turn. Jesus is speaking of a deeper reality. Much like in John 3 when he talked to Nicodemus about his need to be born again. Or in John 4 when he talked to the woman at the well about how he has a water that can quench her thirst forever. Or when he calls himself things like the bread of life or the great shepherd or the door or the light of the world or the resurrection and the life. Jesus is speaking about a deeper reality when he says, I am the way, I am the truth. And I am the life. Thomas, you want to know the way? You want to know the way to my Father? It's through me. There's no other way. And he explains why there's no other way. Why is there no other way? Because, Thomas, I am the truth. I am the true one sent from God the Father. I reveal the truth about who God is. I alone can do that. He's already told, that's already been said to us in this gospel. John chapter 1 and verse 18 tells us that no one has seen God the Father except Christ, and Christ has made him known. He reveals the truth about God. There's no other way to get to the truth about God except through Jesus. He's the truth. If you want to know him, you go through him. There's no other way. Why? Not just because he's the truth, but because he is the life. Again, we've been told this since the beginning of the gospel. John chapter 1 and verse 4, in Christ was life. There's life in himself. In other words, nobody gave him life. Jesus is God, the uncreated one. He is the life giver. He has life in himself and he gives life to all. That was told to us in John chapter 1 and verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Christ, who has life in himself, he is the life. He's the one who gives life. If you want forever life to be with God, you only get it from Christ. There's no other, there's no other way. Jesus is the only way to God because he is the truth of God, and he is the life of God in the flesh. And Jesus says, Thomas, you know the way because I am the way, and you know me. So Thomas, you've got all you need, all you need to make it through the darkness and all the way home. Every ounce of truth that you need, every ounce of life that you need, the darkness can't take it from you. You've got it. Stay with me, and you'll be on the way, all the way home. Shades, do you see how this strengthens our faith so that our hearts may be untroubled amidst the darkness right now? No matter how dark things get, we know that we have a place prepared for us where we will get to see Jesus 
face to face, and the way there is Christ. We have the way. We have the truth. We have the light. We, we have the way that no amount of darkness can hide from us. We have the truth that no amount of dark lies can deceive us from. We have the life that no one can kill us to take. Not even a gunman in Sutherland, Texas. That's why we're still here and they're still there next Sunday morning. We've got a life that can't, can't take. We have all we need for every step we take amidst the darkness because we have Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Shades, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe. Believe. Fight the fight of faith. That's what Paul calls the Christian life in 1 Timothy 6. It's a fight for faith, a fight to believe, a fight to hear the word of Christ, believe the word of Christ, rest in the word of Christ. Fight the fight of faith because Christ has a place for you. He's prepared it for you. He will come again and take you to himself. And in the meantime, in the present, he will be all you need every step of the way. We're going to see exactly how he is all we need in the present, every step of the way. Next week.